Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for another time to gather together as God's people. You know, it is uh, an incredible thing to look at all of your faces and to just think that this, that this is a gathering of the people of God, the people who know God, who worship God, who have individual personal relationships with God, that each of us this past week even, just in the space of seven days, could go back and we could identify very specific ways in which the Lord has demonstrated his love towards us, he's demonstrated his faithfulness, and he's called us to himself anew. So it is such a great blessing to be before you, God's people, this day on the Lord's Day, and to be able to share with you from God's Word. And today, for our instruction, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 15. So if you would, please go there with me in your Bibles. Exodus 19, the first 15 verses. And if you are visiting with us this morning, it is our uh, habit to go through books of the Bible. And so we are now in the book of Exodus. We've been here for about a year or so. And we, have, um, we are now in chapter 19. Last week in chapter 18, we talked about Moses' father-in-law and uh, Reuel, or Jethro, his, he's called Reuel earlier on in Exodus, and we learned last week that his name is also Jethro, and he comes to visit Moses near Mount Sinai. And we've last encountered Jethro back in the early chapters of Exodus. You'll remember when Moses goes, he flees from Egypt, afraid of the Pharaoh, and he leaves and he goes to Midian. He goes to a well. And he sees these seven ladies who are being attacked by these shepherds, being sort of pushed away. And he pushes the shepherds away. He rescues these ladies. And they happen to be the daughters of this one man named Jethro. So in gratitude to Moses, Jethro has him come back to his house and ultimately gives him one of his daughters, brings him in and has him care for his flock. And it's caring for Jethro's flock, uh, that it's in caring for Jethro's flock that Moses encounters the Lord at the burning bush. And after that, he asked Jethro to go back to Egypt. And that was the last we heard of this figure, Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law. Well, in chapter 18, he comes to visit. He comes to meet Moses. The people of God, the Israelites, have gone across the wilderness. They, have, uh, they are now in Midian. They've passed through the Red Sea, and they are coming to the mountain, and they are in Midian and so they send word to Jethro, uh, possibly by his wife, Jethro's daughter, and Jethro comes to meet Moses. And Moses tells him what the Lord has done. And we talked last week about the importance of God's revelation, uh, that we only approach God on the basis of his revelation. He reveals himself first. God takes the initiative in revealing himself to human beings, we read of his special revelation in Scripture, the written revelation of God to us. And we have the revelation of God, and from that we respond to God with faith, repentance, with praise. And that is the model that we see here with Jethro. Moses tells him what the Lord has done, and Jethro's response is immense. He rejoices, he praises and he even brings forward sacrifices. Now, it's difficult to, to tell what's going on with Jethro, religiously speaking. We know that he's a priest of Midian, and we just don't know much about Midianite religion. We don't know if he's like a Melchizedek figure, if he's a true worshiper of the Lord just outside of the covenant people, or... Is his religion sort of a mixture of things with the God of Abraham maybe being at the center or maybe being one of many? We just don't know what to make of uh, Jethro's religion before this point and, and even after this point. But what we do know is that he together, he meets together with Aaron and the elders and Moses and he praises God and he sacrifices to the Lord and he confesses Yahweh, this Midianite foreigner, he confesses Yahweh as the supreme God over all. And so we read last week in chapter 18, verse 11, he says this, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, 
And so prior to this point, we don't know what Jethro knew, what he confessed, but it seems as though uh, that the Lord is maybe in view, perhaps, alongside of other gods. But at this point, the Lord is elevated in Jethro's mind above all other gods, all other spirit beings that could exist or may exist. He is supreme. And then something unexpected happens. Jethro, this foreign Midianite, starts giving Moses advice. And you might think, well, typical father-in-law or, or something of that sort, right? Starts throwing out the advice to Moses. It is unexpected, but it is important for us to note this is the Lord's will. This is the way the Lord is working. He brings Jethro to help Moses, and he gives him this advice. He sees him spending all day. Moses is there seated as judge, and all the peoples are coming to him, spending all day judging the people. Moses describes his daily work in this way in chapter, in verses 15 and 16. Because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And so as we said last week, there was a, an instruction component. Uh, there is a judicial component, a revelation component, an arbitration component. There's a lot going on here. But Moses acts as uh, a, a means of the people coming to the Lord. And Moses gives them wisdom. And Moses decides in their disputes. And the implication here is that all sorts of little tiny disputes, all sorts of little disagreements, all sorts of issues that the people would have. I mean, and we're talking about over 2 million people. Just think within the church here. All the possible issues that could emerge between people here in Four Corners Church. And as one of the elders, those things happen. Uh, issues between God's people occur. I know we think, oh, no, of course not. Well, of course they do. And we're human beings. We are sinful. And we are naturally selfish in the flesh. The Lord gives us his grace and he grows us. But uh, we know from James that this quarreling happens because of our, our bent towards selfishness. We want and do not have. And so we know that there would have been many different disputes coming to Moses. And so he spends all day long with this sort of thing. All day. And Jethro tells Moses that this is not the way forward. Uh, simply put, he says, this is not good. <laughs> it's not good in so many ways. Not efficient, not workable. Uh, this is not something that's going to be durable. This is not the path forward, Moses. Instead, Jethro says that he should, with God's blessing, divide the people into groups and place over them judges who will settle the smaller disputes of course, Moses would have the big disputes, the difficult ones, the Supreme Court level disputes. But all of those underneath that would be handled by these judges chosen from the people. Moses would choose men of good character. These would be men of, of piety. They fear God. And they would be men who are trustworthy, who do not accept a bribe. They're not going to uh, choose one side of a dispute over the other because of partiality or because they may profit or benefit from making one decision over the other or deciding in favor of one person over the other. And so that is his advice. Choose these trustworthy and pious men and place them over the people. And the end result... Jethro says, verses 22 to 23, So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. And the imagery there is that this work is backbreaking for Moses. But it's not just Moses that is the concern. It's also the greater purposes of God. As Moses is mired in these sorts of disputes, he can't do the other things that the Lord has called him to do in leading the people. It's also the case that as Moses is the only judge, you can imagine how long that line would have been. This is not due process. This is taking a very long time to get results for the people, to get the kinds of resolutions that they need. And so it is backbreaking in that sense, not just for Moses, but for all of the people. 
And so Jethro gives Moses this advice. And three main things stand out in that narrative in chapter 18 that I think we need to take note of again as we move in to chapter 19. The first of those is Moses' humility. We also see Jethro's helpfulness and God's sovereignty. The entire event of this advice giving, which changes the leadership structure of Israel, it provides precision and correction. All of it is under God's providence. It is God, we would say, who sent Jethro to Moses. It is God who used Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, as a means. The Lord could have spoken out of the cloud to Moses. Hasn't the Lord been speaking to Moses all along? But instead, he uses the lips of an unexpected source. He uses the lips of a father-in-law. And in this, he calls Moses to humility, to receive this wisdom to receive this counsel and Moses does that he's not puffed up with pride and saying no 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 who who do you think you are giving me advice you're you haven't led this people you haven't been with this people every step of the way and who are you to give me advice you are not one of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac you're not an Israelite go away don't speak to me that's not the attitude at all of Moses. He listens and in a, before the Lord with a humble heart, he receives this advice, trusting in God's means, trusting in God's sovereignty. And so that's what we looked at last week in chapter 18. And today in chapter 19, we come to Mount Sinai. We have finally reached the mountain, the mountain of God, as it is called. God's promise to Moses is now being fulfilled. And we heard of this promise back in chapter 3, verse 12. This is what the Lord told Moses at the burning bush. He said, but I will be with you. So this is the Lord speaking to a very timid, uh, very afraid Moses who does not want to take this challenge. He does not want to take on this work, this task, to go to Egypt and liberate the people. And so the Lord says, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, here we are. God has demonstrated his faithfulness. God has kept his promise. And this is one of the most important things as Christians that we have to keep in view always, and that is that God doesn't lie. He never lies. He always keeps his promise. He is perfectly faithful. So what God has promised to us in his word will come to pass. It doesn't matter what our feelings tell us. It doesn't matter what our culture tells us. It doesn't matter uh, what our thoughts are telling us. What matters is what God says. And it is always true. And it always comes to pass. And here we see that the people have made it to the mountain. God has proven faithful to Moses. God has been with him. And isn't that amazing that God is with his people generally, corporately, but he is also with his people specifically. And so we would say as a church that God is with us as Four Corners Church. But we would also say that God is with each of us as individual members of this body. And so, as I said at the beginning, if we were to go around this morning and talk about God's faithfulness, even in the last seven days, we would see God's glory, we would hear God's glory in just all the ways that he has provided, all the ways he's protected And he has grown us in Christ. We would see that he is a God who shepherds the whole and all of its parts. The title for the sermon this morning as we come to Mount Sinai is Preparing for His Presence. And, you know, as you see that title, that may seem a little strange to you. It may seem like a strange title. I mean, hasn't God been present with his people all along. I mean, God has been there with his people. That's been one of the main themes that we've been looking at as we've gone through since the day that Moses set foot there in Egypt. But even before that, God was with his people. He saw, he visited, he remembered. God's presence has been there all along. So why this 
title, we know that God has been present with his people in the cloud, very specifically. The cloud that leads them by day and uh, the fire that comes forth from that cloud at night leading them by night. We know that God's presence is symbolized by the staff, that Moses holds the staff up on the hill as Joshua and his soldiers fight. When the staff is held up in the air, the people prevail. When the staff comes down, the people begin to lose a symbol of God's presence. When God is with them, fighting for them, they prevail. So yes, we have seen God's presence all along, but the emphasis of chapter 19 turns to God coming to his people in a special way on the mountain. This is something unique. This is something special. We have most certainly seen God's presence, but what we're coming to in chapter 19 is God meeting with his people in a very special, definitive way. Here, God will come down to establish a covenant with his people. He will establish a covenant with the nation, with the people of Israel as a whole. So chapter 19, verse 9, we read this. Behold, I am coming to you. You hear that and you think, well, God is already with them. He has already been with them. But he says, I am coming to you in this unique way. Verse 11. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So the God who has been there will be there. The God who has gone with his people will now come to his people. And today, we get the preparations for that coming or that meeting. And next week, we'll look at the meeting itself. So today, preparing for God's presence. And then next week, they will be there meeting with the Lord in his presence. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus 19 Verses 1 to 15, preparing to meet with the Lord at Mount Sinai. This is the word of God. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord, or Yahweh, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 7, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. But he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. 
Do not go near a woman. And then you'll notice in verse 16, transitions to the actual coming on the morning of the third day. And so that's where we'll go next week. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing over this time in his word. and That our ears would be attentive. Many things to think about, right? When you're sitting like this, just a lot to think on. But pray and ask the Lord to focus your thoughts, focus your ears to what's here. This moment will never be repeated. This time of instruction, I remember Trey saying that at one point uh, years ago when he was preaching a sermon. This, this sermon, this particular text before us on this particular day, this particular time in your life, my life, will not be repeated. And so be present here with the Lord, with his word, and with his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in the scriptures. We thank you for what you have revealed to us in the first part of Exodus 19. We ask, God, that the teaching now would be clear and that our hearts would be attentive. Lord, that our hearts would be malleable in your hands, Lord, that we would be open and ready to receive correction, conviction. Lord, that we would be moved to greater holiness and commitment to you Lord, that we would be moved to greater trust and confidence in you. That we would be moved to greater joy in the gospel and comfort and peace. Uh, As Paul often says in his letters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That that would be uh, our response. That we would have grace and peace. That our minds would be settled on you. That we would know we have peace with you through Christ. And that we would pursue you in light of what you have done for us at the cross. Lord, we pray that this morning uh, we would uh, have quality time together as your people, that our conversations would be sanctified, that our conversations would be edifying. Lord, that we would not carelessly or mindlessly pass the time uh, together, but Lord, that this time of instruction and all this service of praise and prayer and Lord's Supper and all that we do, and then all the conversations we have, Lord, that we would be intentional and that we would do it unto you. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We pray now that your spirit would speak to us individually, applying it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the preparation of the Israelites for meeting God at Sinai takes two major forms. We could really, uh, there's a lot underneath these, but we would break this, we could break this into two parts. And so here they are, preparing for his presence. We have confirmation in verses 1 to 8, and consecration in verses 9 to 15. And so confirmation, the people are confirmed in their covenant relationship with God. That's what's going on in the first eight verses. And then consecration, the people are consecrated as they prepare to meet this holy God. And that's verses 9 to 15. So first, let's look at confirmation Verses 1 to 8. And there we're going to begin by looking at verse 1 down to the first part of verse 3. So we're going to look at all of the first eight verses under this heading confirmation. But for now, I just want to take you up through the beginning of verse 3. So look with me there. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai... They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Now, commentators debate how to translate the time reference in verse 1, but it seems to mean that it has been exactly two months since the Israelites left Egypt. And so there's the the 15th day of the first month, and then we've gone to the 15th day of the second month, and now we're at the 15th day of the third month. It seems that that is the best way to take this. So one commentator, Dwayne Garrett, gives this explanatory translation. So he's translating, but also filling in, uh, explaining the sense of what's going on here. So he he does that in this way for verse 1. In the third month of the year of the Israelites' departure from the land of Egypt, on this day... The very same day of the month as their departure date, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And as I said before, this is 
uh, I wouldn't say hotly debated. <laughs> this is not a hotly debated point. But this is something certainly that commentators wrestle with and debate over how to take the Hebrew in this passage. But it seems that there, have, there has been two months since the Israelites left uh, Egypt. And now here they are on the very day. And isn't that uh, God's good providence as he has led the people here on the 15th day, the day when they came out of Egypt at Passover. Here they are at the mountain. And here we read that they moved from Rephidim to the wilderness of Sinai and set up encampment in front of the mountain. They encamp at the mountain, back from the mountain, while Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And apparently, we're not told this, but apparently at this point, the cloud that has been leading the Israelites has now moved to the mountain. So uh, the cloud has moved with the Israelites and directed them and guided them. It's interesting because even in that, we've seen God's directing by other means, just as with Jethro. Uh, But God, this cloud has led the people, reinforcing for them that God is their shepherd, that he's watching over them, he's with them, he's caring for them. This cloud has led them now to the mountain, and it seems that the cloud is now over the mountain, and Moses goes up to where the cloud is. And as he goes up to meet God, Moses is here acting as Israel's mediator. We're getting a picture here of the whole story of Scripture. We're getting a picture here of the core realities of the Christian faith. We, we know that in the Old Testament we get pictures, we get symbols, we get types. And those are fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ. And what we are getting here is this picture of the whole people... The one true and living God and one individual mediating between the true and living God and all of God's people. One man as the mediator conveying God's message to the people and the people's message back to God. He acts as intercessor and mediator and we know from 1 Timothy chapter 2 that this is a picture of Christ. It says there, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You know, this is really important for us to recognize. We do not worship a generic God. And it's interesting, it, it's, it's, it's actually quite disturbing how many people, when you take these various polls and how many people who call themselves evangelicals seem to suggest that the Christian God is really the same as the Muslim God or uh, as the Jews now conceive of God or others, that it's just all really the same thing. We, of course, know that that is not, the, not true. God is not a generic God. He is a specific God, and he is specifically the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one path to God, to the eternal, infinite, ineffable, glorious King. There is only one road to this God. That's it. And it's not religion. It's not human attempts to appease this God. It's Christ. He's the only way to get to God the Father is through God the Son who became flesh, who became human. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. One mediator and the one means of mediation is by his blood. There must be death for sin Since the garden, since the fall, and Christ pours out his blood, he takes our penalty of death upon himself, and through that, he frees us from the power of sin and the consequence of death. Apart from Christ, you have no hope of knowing God. Any God that you say you know apart from Christ is a figment of your imagination, just a made-up, imaginary best friend. There is one God, and he exists, and he is true, and we approach him through Christ, or we do not approach him at all. One mediator, and Moses here pictures that mediation which will come eternally through Jesus Christ. As we look at the rest of these verses up to verse 8, 
we see that God is confirming his people in their covenant relationship with him. And this comes in two parts. And so as we look at this confirmation, what God is doing providentially as he oversees this and what God is doing as he reaches out to the people and communicates with the people through Moses is he is confirming this covenant. And this is broken into two parts. So here they are. You can write these down if you'd like. God's call and Israel's commitment. God's call and Israel's commitment. So first, God's call. Look at verses 3 to 6. God's call to covenant. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God has a message. He has a message for the people, and Moses is to deliver deliver it. And the Lord calls them the house of Jacob and the people of Israel bringing them back to their origins. It's, it's almost as though by, by saying these words that they are the house of Jacob and the people of Israel, God is hitting the rewind button for them mentally. He's taking them back on a fast track all the way back centuries before to all those stories that they have heard orally and that will be written down by Moses, those stories of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob bringing them back to centuries of promise and faithfulness to those promises. And God reminds them here of what he has done, what he did to the Egyptians and how he bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. So he uses this image of a mother eagle caring for her young. And this is unpacked for us further in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Here's what it says. Will read it to us earlier. Like an eagle... That stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. So the imagery here is of a mother eagle who is pushing her her young out of the nest, but then bearing them up on her wings and caring for them, shielding them, loving them. This is a picture that the Lord chooses to illustrate for the Israelites what he has done for them, that he has brought them out of Egypt, what he has done to the Egyptians, and how he has cared for them as a mother eagle cares for her young. That's where God begins. Notice that here in the text. That's where God begins. That's the starting point, what God has done. And it is out of that and only out of that that God calls his people to obedience, that he calls his people to go and do. Now notice that. It's a very important thing that we recognize as we read Scripture is the indicative before the imperative. And what I mean by that is first we learn, first we see what God has done in history. First we hear of what God has done for us, And it is then, after we understand what God has done, then we are called to do what God has called us to do in response to what he alone can do. We do not act first. God acts first. It is his initiative. It is his agency. It is his indicative. God did this. And then we go according to his command. This is the pattern that we find all throughout the New Testament. So probably the most famous example is in Ephesians chapters, you know, you have one to six. The first three chapters, you get what God has done. You get a description of this glorious salvation that God has brought his people. And then we turn in chapter four, five, and six to the therefore, and you get the same kind of thing in Romans 12. Therefore, this is what we are to do. And this tells us that anything we do in the Christian life, listen to this, any 
imperative that we uh, focus on, any act that we carry out, must be explicitly in relation to what God has done. Otherwise, we become just busy, self-righteous legalists. Otherwise, we just become people who are just doing things, right? And we know, we know what that results in. Jesus has a lot to say in the Sermon on the Mount. When you consider how much is given to this false hypocritical religion in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, it shows us the weightiness of it. What happens when the indicative is not always in view before the imperative is we become those who perform for other people. We become those who do our religious acts, who do our deeds of righteousness, who make our prayers, whatever it might be, to be seen by others. Because it is just dangling in midair. It's just coming out of us with no basis, with no foundation. It has to have the foundation of what God has done. God has saved, so we go and do. What we see here is that God reminds them that they are a rescued people. This is their identity. And so God calls them to act in accordance with who they are. As God's rescued people, they are to obey his voice and keep his covenant. And think about it this way. God has rescued them and brought them to himself. And so now they listen to his voice. It's the imagery of Jesus as the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They know me, they follow me, and they hear my voice. And we follow after him. We do as Jesus has commanded because he has rescued us unto himself. As God's rescued people, they are to obey his voice. And if so, they will be his treasured possession. Among all peoples, his one unique special treasure out of all the peoples of the earth. Think of all the nations in the earth that the Lord could have chosen. All the peoples. And he chose this nation. He chose these descendants. He chose these patriarchs and their offspring. His one unique special treasure. All the earth is his. And yet he has chosen Israel alone as a nation to be his people. And they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people set apart for God alone for his praises, devoted to his glory. And as priests, they will draw others into that glory. God's purpose for Israel was that everywhere they went, they would function as as those who would point people to the Lord, as those who would make known God's revelation, God's purposes for humanity to all the peoples of the earth. We see this functioning with people like Daniel in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. We see this functioning like with with Esther With Ahasuerus, we see this throughout Scripture as God's people, think of Jonah in Nineveh, uh, moving out from Israel, moving out to the nations, acting as priests, acting as those who point the peoples to the Lord. Well, we know that on the whole, as far as this whole priestly business is concerned, as far as this holy nation is concerned, that Israel as a whole fails And that's one of the big problems that Paul takes up in Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 9, essentially, he's saying, what has happened? Israel has fallen away as as a nation, as a whole. The people have rejected Yahweh because they have rejected his Christ. What has happened? Israel as a whole has failed. And yet Israel's Messiah has not failed. Israel's Messiah has succeeded. Israel's Messiah has acted as the great high priest between all peoples and the Lord. And we learn from Romans 11 that Israel, in the end, right now, uh, the people of Israel, there's a remnant of Jewish people who have trusted in Christ all throughout history. But we learn in Romans chapter 11 that in the end, God will save Israel. All Israel will be saved. The nation will turn to him. And the realization of this holy people, kingdom of priests, will be realized for the people as a whole. 
as the new covenant is poured out on the nation as a whole. But what about us this morning? What about us, Gentiles, presumably most, not all, if not all of us? What about us as we sit here and consider God relating to his people here in this way? Well, we have been grafted in, and as believers, we are, as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, a chosen race. Listen to this. If you're a Christian, what I'm about to read applies to you. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know this is our job? It's not a matter of just following some evangelistic steps. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do these various steps. It it is the fact that this is who we are. The essence of who we are is that we are those who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every time we go to work, that's what we're doing. We're proclaiming excellencies. Every time we go to the store, every time we go to get a cup of coffee or go through a drive through or meet with friends or talk with neighbors or whatever, that's what we are, those who proclaim the excellencies of our saving God, acting as little mediators between those in the world who do not know God and God's Christ. So that's God's call as we consider this confirmation of the covenant. And now we come to Israel's commitment. Look at verses 7 to 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. What is Israel's response? Well, here they say, okay. They say, okay. They commit themselves to the Lord. They enter into this covenant relationship with God as their God, as the one who has saved them and cared for them. And it's easy to read this kind of cynically and to think, oh yeah, you know, you're so confident, uh, but what's gonna go on to happen? And I don't think that's the way we're supposed to read this. We're supposed to understand this as a joining between Yahweh and his people. Yahweh extends an invitation to his people and the people accept They say, yes, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. God is the one who has saved them and cared for them. And so they commit themselves to him alone as their God. So Moses brings this covenantal affirmation back to the Lord. So see Moses, he's he's moving between the Lord and the people. He goes and conveys God's message to the people, and then he takes the people's message back to the Lord. And that brings us to our second part this morning, and that is consecration. So we've looked at confirmation, and now we come to confirmation. So look first with me at verses 9 to the beginning of verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you, And may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. God tells Moses that his coming on Mount Sinai in a thick cloud and in the people's hearing will reinforce Moses' role and instill confidence in the people in Moses' leadership. And this is important because all along we've seen the people attack Moses. From the very beginning, even with the foremen, as they are beaten early on when Moses first comes to Pharaoh, we see the people grumbling against Moses and quarreling with Moses, as it were, throwing rocks at Moses. And at one point, Moses even says, the people are about ready to stone me, God. They're going to kill me. Angry at Moses. And so the Lord wants to highlight Moses' role. He wants the people to be confident in him as their leader. And so the Lord will do that while revealing himself to the people. And now, 
after the covenant invitation has been accepted by Israel, God calls the people to prepare themselves to meet him. He calls them to consecration, to be set apart. And this consecration involves three things, and this is where we'll finish up this morning. Washing, distancing, and abstaining. Washing, distancing, and abstaining. This is what the Lord calls his people to as consecration in preparation to meet him. So first, washing. Look at verses 10 and 11. Consecrate them, or set them apart today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, this whole thing about clothes washing is interesting to us. Because we know that in one sense, this is about clothing. But in another sense, it is not about clothing at all. The people must wash their clothes. That's what God commands them to do. They must go and wash their garments. That's the command. There's no way around it. And this probably would have been quite involved. I mean, can you imagine? It's not like they're taking, they're bathing themselves, or bathing their clothes very often. And so you can imagine all of the people needing to wash their clothes. Trying to get around the water source that the Lord had provided when he split the rock. Trying to get enough water to wash their clothes. This is quite an orchestrated affair. You can imagine that all of those judges who are placed over the people are now tasked with making sure that all the people get in their little pods and groups so that they can successfully wash all their clothes and all their kids' clothing. This would have been quite an undertaking And it is the command. It must be done. They must wash their garments. But, on the other hand, we know that this is not about clothes. It is not about clothes. It is about the heart. The people are to wash the outside as a picture of the cleansing on the inside. They are to prepare their hearts to meet this one and only holy God. This is all about purity and holiness of heart. And we're not told that here, but you're meant to understand that as the people are gathering, they're having to move. They're having to depart from their normal tasks, the things that they normally do to stand in line, to scrub their clothing. All of this is reminding them of the need for them to be pure and holy on the inside before the Lord. Clean on the outside is the command. The intent is clean on the inside, preparing to commune with the holy God. In that sense, it's just like the burning bush. There was nothing intrinsically wrong with Moses' sandals. after he took his sandals off and had his feet there, his feet would have gotten just as dirty as the bottom of his sandals. Nothing intrinsically special about Moses' bare feet. The dirt on his sandals didn't do anything to God's glory. But God told him to take his sandals off for he was standing on holy ground. And Moses needed to see that God must be approached with care. That God must be approached with the right heart the pure heart, with a devoted heart. Psalm 51.2 puts this in the clearest of terms as David is calling out to the Lord after his great sin with Bathsheba. And he says this in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Scrub me. Scrub my soul, God. Scrub my heart. Scrub it clean, scrub it shiny, scrub it spotless, and cleanse me from my sin. That was David's prayer to the Lord. And that is what is symbolized here in the scrubbing and washing of those clothes. And what we need to recognize is that though what we are reading is unique to Israel at this point in the history of redemption, at the beginnings of the Old Covenant. 
Although we recognize that what we are reading here is not to be brought over as a one-to-one correspondence with us today, there is a principle here that still applies today. And it is this simple. We clean ourselves as we approach God. We clean ourselves as we approach the Lord. And that doesn't mean you have to wear a suit to church. That doesn't mean that you can't have any of your breakfast on your cheek from uh, earlier in the morning. This doesn't mean that the coffee that you spilled on your pants as you are driving over to the church has to be eliminated before you can come in here to praise God. What it means is that we must intentionally come to God. He's God. He is the Lord. We come to him with clean hearts. And this is the reason early in our service as we consider God's greatness, we consider in our call to worship God's greatness and in our song of adoration, from that we move to our confession of sin. And it's a recognition, this is the holy God, the eternal, infinite King. We are coming into his presence. Woe is me, we say with Isaiah. Woe is me, we say with the tax collector there at the temple. We confess our sins. It is not time to just sit there silently and think about lunch. It is not time just to sit there and think about anything other than our sin before a holy God and confessing it that we might have clean hearts before his presence. Second, we see distancing. First, washing. Second, Distancing. Look at verses 12 to 13. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Through Moses, God commands the people to stay away from the mountain. They are, they are to prepare themselves. They are being consecrated and they are to stay away from the mountain and not even touch it. If they do touch it, they will be executed. They will be put to death. With arrows, they will be shot through with arrows or stoned to death. And these were means of execution that would prevent anyone from touching the offender. So once that person has done that, it it is not fitting to even touch them. It's not fitting to even get close to them. They are to be stoned or shot through with arrows. This was the Lord's command. Even the animals are to stay away from the mountain. Such is the holiness of God. Not until the third day when they hear the trumpet blast shall they approach the mountain. They must remain distant. They must be cognizant of the great divide between the holy God and sinful humans. Do You know, a a lot of the watered-down Christianity in our culture today makes so little of God's holiness. There's a lot about us. There's a lot about our experiential enjoyment of God but very little about the weight of God's glory, about his holiness, about who he is as the infinite one, the holy one. As new covenant believers, as we think about this distance that the people had to the mountain, as new covenant believers, this of course reminds us of the veil or the curtain of the Holy of Holies and what happened to it at the crucifixion. Nothing symbolizes this distance more than the curtain that hangs in front of the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest and only once a year, once we see the tabernacle built, only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. And put blood on the mercy seat. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so we recognize as new covenant believers here this morning that there is no longer that separation. That we have access to God. And so we read in Hebrews four sixteen that we are to come boldly. And draw near to the throne of 
grace. And in Romans 5, 2, we recognize that through Christ we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so, isn't it amazing just to, just to stop and reflect on the fact that this God shown to us here in this separated holy way has come so near to us that we come boldly into his presence anytime and we stand always in his presence, in his grace, crying out to this holy God, Abba, with all of our cares, with all of our concerns, making supplication to him with thanksgiving. How amazing is that? Why, why would we live for anything else when we have that? When we have this God relating to us in this way. But even though we have that access, and even though we have that boldness or confidence, we must come to God with reverence. This can never be lost. Who God is, who is this one that we are speaking to when we pray, he is still God. He is Abba, and he is God, eternal creator God, the maker of innumerable angels. This is the Lord of glory we pray to, not casually, not flippantly, not distractedly, but with the utmost reverence and with boldness and with great confidence in his grace. Third, we see abstaining briefly, verses 14 to 15. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Well, what do we make of this final command? It just seems to be kind of smashed in there at the end, you know. It doesn't really fit. He said all of these things. There's the washing that takes place, and there's the distancing that takes place. And then at the end he says, and do not go near a woman. The people are told to abstain from sexual relations. That's what this means. In other words, they are to avoid becoming ritually impure. And this is back to the clothes washing. Not that there's anything impure at all about marital sexual relations, but that there is to be here and abstaining from that as part of their preparation to meet with the Lord. And they are to focus their attention entirely on approaching Yahweh, once again, it is meant to communicate the gravity of what is about to happen. It is meant to communicate the holiness of God and the need for the people to prepare themselves to meet him. So as we finish up this morning and, and thinking about preparation, preparing to commune with God, I just want to ask you this morning, is there any of that in your life? I, I mean, we, we know we, we're always with God. He's always with us. We know that we have this access and this boldness, but does this whole idea of preparing yourself to meet with God, does it even play a real role in life? Does it play any kind of role on Sunday mornings as you come to corporate worship? Does it play any role in family worship at home? Does it play any role as you open up God's word to read it or as you come to him in prayer? Or do we just go to God in prayer? Help me, 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 help me. Why, 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 why? Just, just, just making our supplications. You know, that, that uh, model for prayer, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We just jump to the S and we hang out there. Just a lot of S's. Just a whole lot of self-fulfillment S's. Do we prepare to come into the presence of our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him always and worshiping him. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And by the way, Lord, I do need bread. Forgive me of my sins. Lead me, not into temptation. Deliver me. But first, your glory, your adoration. If I, if I stop existing right now, your glory. That's what the world is about. That's what our lives are about. And we always come to God with those things in view. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you show us here in your word. We thank you for 
your holiness, your set-apartness, your purity, your perfection, your majesty, your supremacy. Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in the person of your Son and that you have given us your Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that we ourselves are your temples. Father, this is unimaginable. This is hard to even begin to wrap our minds around. But Lord, it is true. It is what you have told us. And Lord, what power that gives us for living the Christian life. What joy that gives us in considering who we are and how it spurs us on in holiness of life to proclaim the excellencies in every area of our lives. Father, help us. We are a distracted people. We are a worldly people. We are a comfortable people. Lord, stir up our hearts to be devoted to you alone. Make all the trinkets of this world, all of its pleasures, all of its leisures, all of its delights seem as nothing. And would your holiness, your glory be what we live for. We pray for this in Jesus' name. And we ask your blessing as we now come to meet with you in this way at the Lord's Supper. Would we prepare our hearts for this? little new covenant meal as we anticipate that meal that we will have with Christ one day when he returns. Lord, may we prepare our hearts. Would you prepare our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.